1 Corinthians, we are walking through Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. He is writing a letter to them to address some of the problems he's seen in the church. And he's writing a letter to them to answer some of the questions that they have. And and what we see in this, we have a a rather lengthy passage today, but don't worry. We're not going to talk about every little thing in the passage. But uh, he's addressing answers to questions that they've had. They've got all kinds of questions because really the, the Corinthians, they're confused about some things. They're confused about, hey, how does being a Christian really affect how you live? How does it affect your identity? How does it affect your purpose? How does it affect what we're here for? And so Paul, he's, he's answering a, a lot of those things by answering their, their status, their relationships, and, and what they do as well. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read, um, we, we ended on verse 8 last week, but we're going to go back a little bit, read from verse 7 all the way to verse 40. So turn your Bibles to me, 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in, your, in the overhead here with us. This is God's holy, inspired word for us. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion." To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be unreconciled, I'm sorry, be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife? How do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. I lost my place in the passage. (laughs) This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as to the one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your practical instruction, Lord, your your theologically informed instruction, God, your instruction that revolves around what we've been called to, who we're called to be, and our very our purpose and our identity is to be found in you. So, Father, I pray that this morning you would help us not only make sense of these things, but, but hear from you, hear from you, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us? Would you open up our dull minds, and Lord, would you break through those areas of our hearts that have been hardened. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a new mind and a new heart in Christ so that we can hear from you and receive from you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us here. God, may we we reorient our lives around you because of this word. Lord, would you empower me to preach this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. One practical note is if it is is it warm in here? Is it just me? Okay, excellent. Can can someone look after that? Excellent. Thank you very much. Sorry, I realize I'm sweating and I'm not sick. So and I never sweat. So uh, well, at least unless I'm outside. But anyway, um, so uh, thanks for bearing with us. We're a family. We can talk about family stuff. We don't have to always be polished. Um, if you are aware, the idea of identity. The idea of purpose, the idea of value and worth, um, they are huge topics of discussion constantly in our society, aren't they? Uh, people identify based on a lot of things, right? You can, you can identify, and we hear this, people identifying based on sexual orientation. Paul's already begun to dismantle that. He's dismantling that even more here. They can identify based on preferences. People can identify based on social causes. People can identify based on their activities or their stage, their season of life, their social status, their, whether they're married or unmarried, whether 
They have a certain kind of job. It's blue collar, white collar. The question that we need to think about as we're looking through this passage, really what's, what's running all throughout this entire passage is Paul is, is getting after something here. They're asking all kinds of questions about, hey, um, is it wrong to be married? And if we're married, should we abstain from sex? But if we're single, should we remain single? Or is it, is it more godly to be single or be married? And, or what about if we're slaves? What about if we're free? What about if, if, um, if, if we're living in, in, a, in a different vocation or calling? What about our jobs? How does it affect our identity? They're asking all these questions, and and Paul is systematically answering their questions directly, but what he's getting after here is is really that central theme of identity. And so as you're hearing this long passage, reading through, you're thinking, Paul, what in the world's going on? You're talking about being married and unmarried, being single, and then then you kind of this little diversion in the middle where you talk about being slaves or free. What in the world does that have to do with being married or not? And then you talk about vocation and calling and like whatever you find yourself called to do, do do that. And then you come back to marriage and singleness. Paul, what's going on? I think what Paul is driving after, what the Holy Spirit is driving after is is that our primary identity is not found in any of those things. It's not found in our social status. It's, It's not found in our relationship status either. But you know what? It's hard to remember that because functionally, often we define ourselves by our status, our job, or, or by our relationships, don't we? How, how do you define yourself this morning? I want you to really think about that. How, when you introduce yourself to someone, when you tell somebody the key highlights about who you are, that you're just meeting them for the first time, what are some of the highlights that you share? You don't have to say that out loud, but, you know, is it your profession? Your, you know, your occupation? Is it your interests? Is it whether you're married or single? Is it, what, what, what defines you? Where's your identity found? You know, that's a question that humanity's been asking for millennia. Who am I? And Paul's answering that. He says, you're not primarily married or single. You're not primarily your vocation. You're not primarily whether you're a slave or free. Something else defines you. Someone else defines you. And so he's reorienting the thinking of the church in Corinth. And I believe that God would have us reorient our thinking as well. But there's some things we need to see here. There's some, there's some keys to understanding this passage. And when you're reading through long passages like this, sometimes you have to, you have to look for some keys. And so what we're going to see here is we, we see at least one word that's repeated throughout. There's, there's several words that are repeated throughout. But one word is repeated throughout. We see a command, a central command. And then we see a, a central purpose statement and a, an identity clause as well, if you will. Because, you know, sometimes when you're walking through big passages of Scripture like this, they're like, what in the world's going on? It can be like you're walking through... Heavy, dense brush. You're, you're on a hike. You're walking through heavy, dense brush. And you can't see the vistas, what's really there. And sometimes you need to kind of pull up. You need to kind of climb a tree or get up on a high rock or, or get above the brush so you can see what's really going on. And really, that's it's important for us to do in passages like this. And, and, and first of all, there's this little word that keeps reappearing. Look, look down at verse 8. Look in, look in verse 8. There's a little word. It's Remain. Remain. And I think it's key to understanding how this whole passage holds together. Paul, he's encouraging those who are single or never married or those who are now unmarried to remain that way in order to better serve the Lord. Now, let's look down at verse 11. He uses the same word again. He says, again, remain. Those who are separated or divorced remain that way. And then in verse 20, look down again at verse 20. He's addressing circumcised and uncircumcised. And he says, remain, remain as you are. If you're, if you're married, remain that way. If you're, if you're single and unmarried, remain that way. If you're uncircumcised or circumcised, remain that way. 
Because what matters, he says to them, is, is keeping the commandments of God, not a matter of externalities. Now look down at verse 24. Paul, he's encouraging, again, those who are bond slaves, those who are slaves or free, and he says something to them. He, goes, he says, in whatever condition you were called, remain that in that condition. So he's addressing all these different things. He's addressing your relationship status. No matter what your relationship status, remain in that status in the Lord. No matter, no matter whether your outward externals, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, remain that way in God. And no matter whether you're slave or free, remain that way in God. It doesn't mean those things don't matter, but that's not your primary identity. Look in verse 26. He, he comes back. He says, he says, those who are betrothed but not yet married, and betrothed was somewhere between engagement and marriage. They were, they were locked in by their parents, really, to, towards being betrothed. And he says, if you're betrothed and, you, and you're not you don't believe you're called to marriage, remain that way. But if you get married, remain that way. And then look in verse 32 to 34. He says the reason he encouraged them to remain unmarried is he wants them to be free from the anxieties that come with marriage. And by the way, if you are married, you know that's true. There are some anxieties, if you're honest, that come with marriage. Paul says, I want you to be free from those concerns. If you're unmarried, I want you to be anxious about how to please the Lord. And then look down in verse 40. Paul's encouraging married women whose husbands have died. They're free to remarry, but he thinks they'll, happier, they'll be happier if they remain unmarried. And so you see this theme that Paul is saying that no matter what your status, no matter what your relationship status, no matter what your external religious status, no matter how people view you, no matter whether you're slave or free, you can remain devoted to the Lord. No matter what, where you find yourself. Your identity, your purpose, your calling has nothing to do with all those things. Now, it's played out in all those things, right? Your identity, your purpose, your calling, you'll see that, or it should be seen in, in your marriage, your singleness, your religious practices, and your vocation. Now, now for the overarching, so that's, that's the overarching, you see this, this word that appears throughout that kind of links the whole passage together. Now there's an overarching command right kind of in the, in the center of the passage. Look down at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, he says, only let each person, so go back, I think, there's a, I think there's a passage there, maybe not. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, if not, just go ahead and look in your Bible, it says, only let each person, here's the command, the overarching command, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him in which God has called him. There's an overarching command. Now look, look at our overarching identity statement. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, look down at verse 23, it says, you were bought with a price. So, Let's remain how God has called us. Let's live the life that he's called us to because we're bought with a price in verse 23. And then in verse 35, go down again. He gives us an overarching purpose statement. In verse 35, says, I'm not trying to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. And here's, here's the purpose, to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so what we see really through all this passage, what's, what's holding all this together is, is that main idea. You can go back to that, this main idea that, that every Christian has, has been bought. Every Christian has been gifted. Every Christian has been called by God for a purpose, to be devoted to him. So we see our identity, and we see our vocation, and we see our purpose. And it's not linked to all the things that we think it's linked to sometimes. So sometimes we think that, that our identity is linked to being married or single. Sometimes we think that our identity is tied to our vocation. Sometimes we think our identity is tied to what we think that God is just calling us as one thing. And really what else to see is that, no, we've been bought. That's, that's who we are. We've been bought by Christ. We've been gifted. 
Everybody's been gifted, but in different ways. Everyone's been called by God. No matter what you do for a living, you've been called by God. There is no secular, sacred distinction in the sense that, that you know, my job is, is somehow sacred because I'm a pastor and, and people who work in engineering or, or whatever it might be, that their, their job is, is secular. No, that everyone is called by God, no matter what your vocation, and we're to be devoted to him. That's the overarching theme that we see all throughout this passage. And he does this by, by addressing different areas. And so he first addresses the relationship status. And so one of the first things we see is that he says that we can remain single, devoted to the Lord. So your singleness does not define you. If you are here and you are single, you need to hear that. It doesn't define you. You can remain single, devoted to the Lord. It is not necessarily better to be married did you hear that? It's not necessarily better to be married. Now, that's countercultural. It was countercultural for Paul. It is, it is today as well. You know, I, I don't, I have to confess something. It's, it's not necessarily a biblical confession here, so, but I have to confess that I don't like the term single. It bothers me. Now, now Paul uses it, so, so I've got, I've have, I have to come to terms with the fact that it might not be clearly biblical, but I'm, I'm, I'm bothered because how people use it. I'm bothered with how people use the word single. Because to say that, that you're single in today's society, it seems to say that somehow you're lacking. That somehow you're deficient. If you're, oh, they're single. Oh boy, they're not married. And then there's implications. Well, maybe they couldn't find anybody. Or what's wrong with them? Or what happened to them? And, and then there's names associated. The older you get, the, the, if you're single too. Names associated with those things. To be single is often seen as, as you're less than, that you're, you're lacking in some way. And, and married people, we're always often trying to fix single people up. As if that's their ultimate destiny, they will not be fulfilled, they will not be complete until that happens. And if you're single, you can feel that way. As if you're lacking, you're not complete. Single people can feel bad about being single as if Something must be wrong. It can drive your identity. It can feel like you're incomplete. And Paul counters that idea that, that your relationship status somehow makes you deficient. Look at the very, the very beginning of the verse. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good. It is theologically, biblically, before God, good to remain single. Now, now, Paul, he might have, we talked about before, he might have already been married. Most likely he was. He's not married at this point. And so he's saying, if you're unmarried and if you're a widow, so if you've never been married or if you've been widowed, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. It's a gift from God. Contrary to the culture in that day that said the singleness was a curse, Paul says, no, it's good. And it might be preferable, by the way, because there's a lot of troubles that come with marriage. Don't think if you're single that somehow your troubles in life will be resolved if, if you become married. Paul says the reverse. He says, now I want you to think about hard if you're single. I want you to consider whether you have that gift or not because you can be free to serve the Lord in ways that, that married people <clears throat> will not be free. You can be devoted to God, to the work of the Lord. You can serve God in an undistracted, more free manner. So you're not worrying about some of the, the natural things of this, of this world, like provision and you know, safety and some other things. If you have a spouse, you're worrying about them and where you're taking them, what you're doing. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, isn't there a creation mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply? And yes, there is. And, and it's the norm that, that is found in marriage, 
that we have children that, that we're fruitful and we multiply. But, but here's the thing. Um, Paul, he is reorienting that and saying, I want to I expand this greater. Single people can actually be devoted to the cause of the Lord. And what's the cause of the Lord? To bring people to himself. And so as a single, you can still be fruitful and multiply as you make disciples. That's one of the ways that you can be devoted to Christ is by seeking to have many spiritual children. But Paul says, and everybody has that gift, if you can't exercise self-control, if you're burning to the place where you can't stop burning with desire for sexual relationships, then instead of fulfilling those things outside of marriage and, and, and disobeying God, he says, then pursue marriage. But while you're single, it's a gift. While you're single, it's a gift. And then he tells, look down, I want you to skip down to verse 25. He talks to people who are engaged. Now, you might be thinking about, wait a minute, if, if I'm engaged, then I have to get married, right? Paul says, no, you're not going to sin if you don't get married. Look in verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed. Now, there's not a direct one-to-one correlation, but there's an application for us today. If, if you are engaged and, and, and you believe that, wait a minute, I, I think this is not what God has for me. It's not a sin, He says, in view of this present distress, it might be good for a person to remain as he is in verse 26. Apparently the church was in a a season, a period of distress, and he says, you know, given everything that's going on, it might be better that you wait because it might be much harder on you if you don't. I like the way Leon Morris says it. He says, when the high seas are raging, it's no time for changing ships. Verse 27, Paul says, are you bound to a wife? Well, don't seek to be free. So he's not, what he's saying is that, hey, you know, this is not like, oh, since the times are short, then, then you've got to get rid of your marriage relationships either. Because no, neither singleness nor marriage defines you. If you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you haven't sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. So walk into marriage aware. It will not solve your problems. That is not your primary identity. If you're single and you get married, don't think that it's going to get rid of your troubles. It might increase some of them. But if you're married and having troubles, don't think that somehow your identity revolves around marriage. Look at verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. What he's saying is that we, we were to live in light of the fact that, that God has called us. That's our identity. God has called us. He set us free from being bound by what makes everyone else anxious. He, he's called us to, to be thinking about how can we please the Lord. That's our primary calling. Whatever we do, how can we, how can we please the Lord? And, and realize that if you are married you're, you're going to have some other concerns, how to please your wife and how to please your husband. It's, it's necessary concerns. And Paul says, I want you to think hard about those things because neither marriage nor singleness defines you. That's not your identity. And then now look in, in verse 35, this, this purpose clause that runs throughout. He says, I, don't, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. So he's not restraining people from getting married, not, not restraining people in their season of life, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what we're called to. That's our primary calling. Then he talks about different statuses. If, if you think that, wait a minute, I'm, I'm behaving inappropriately towards somebody I'm engaged with and I, my passions are strong, get married, but at the same time, if I'm able to control those passions, it's not wrong if we don't sin because in everything, it's what defines us is not our relationship status. 
So you can be single and devoted to the Lord. And the second, second thing that we see in this passage is that we can also be married and devoted to the Lord. You know, being married is hard, right? Any, anybody here who's married want to identify with that? Being married is hard? Can you raise your hand if you identify with that statement? Okay, now everyone else is afraid of their spouse. Um, so it is one of, the, one of the most wonderful gifts and joys that I have, aside from Christ, is my wife. But you know what? With marriage comes lots of challenges, lots of concerns, lots of troubles. You know, the disciples, they struggle with the idea of, of marriage for life. This wasn't a new thing. Back in the day of the Pharisees, the Pharisees would give a writ of decree for divorce if there's any kind of major disagreement so they could get out of marriage. And that was the culture that the disciples lived in in that day. And so Jesus counters that and he says, no. He says, no, I don't want you to get divorced for, divorce is never God's plan. And, and there's only divorce for adultery. And the disciples responded, who can do that? That's way too hard. It's better not to marry. And now you'd be thinking, that's kind of a funny response. But if you're really honest about it, it's not. Because there will be times when you want to get out. There will be times in marriage when marriage is tough, when marriage is hard, and you think that this is what defines you. And Paul says, no, marriage isn't what defines you. You can be devoted to the Lord in marriage. And then he gives some practical guidance about, about things because our ultimate devotion is to the Lord. And because of that, it, it needs to be seen in our marriage. And, and so in addition to what Jesus said about adultery being a, a way that we can dissolve marriage, that divorce is appropriate, um, Paul gives some other ways. But before he does it, he says, you know, if you're married, you shouldn't be separated. Don't seek to be separated. We can remain married and devoted to the Lord. It will be hard. There are troubles. But you have been joined in one flesh by God with your spouse before God in a unique way. And so instead of leaving your spouse when they don't meet your needs, you need to realize your needs are met in him. Instead of leaving your spouse when, when you feel like your identity is wrapped up in them, you need to say, okay, wait a minute. My identity is not in my spouse. My purpose is not just marriage. My purpose is to be devoted to the Lord. And I can do that in marriage. You know, but marriage, it, it's meant to be a, a picture of, of Christ's sacrificial love for the church and the church's desire to wholeheartedly and willingly submit to Christ in all things. And so if our marriage is a picture of that, one, then we are to remain married, devoted to the Lord. Verse 10, Paul says uh, to the married, I give this charge, and he says, not I, but the Lord. He isn't setting up a hierarchy where, where it's God's commands are, are better than Paul's. What he's saying is he's quoting the Lord. He's making sure they know where he's quoting Jesus because later he's actually going to say, I say this, not the Lord. And it has the same weight, the same exact weight. In the end of the passage, he actually says, and I, and I think I have the Spirit. And, and by the way, my word is trustworthy by the mercy of God. By the mercy of God, I'm a trustworthy apostle. I can give commands. I can, by the Spirit, my word is trustworthy. And so he, he gives this command. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife, in verse 11. Because what it's communicating, if, what divorce communicates, is that, that we, we can get out of this relationship with God, that God is actually done with us when we disobey, when we're difficult to live with. As a Christian, our marriage is meant to communicate this, this everlasting bond that Christ has with the church. This unbreakable union. 
So when we get out of marriage as a Christian, we are, we're kind of proclaiming that, that really that's not what marriage is about. And Paul redefines it and says, no, that's not the purpose of marriage is actually to reflect our relationship to Christ in the first place. Now I have to note, though, there's, that he gives some causes to where there's freedom to remarry. There's freedom to remarry not only in the Lord where, where there's adultery, but there's also freedom to remarry if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave you. He says, let them go. You're also free to remarry if your spouse dies. So there's three different causes. Now, I need to note that since we live in a fallen world, not everyone here meets those clean conditions, okay? But here's the good news. Whether you're divorced or not, whether you've had multiple marriages, whether they were biblical marriages or not, that's not your identity. Your identity is shaped by your relationship and your marriage to Christ. And there's forgiveness for any kind of sin. We talked about sexual sin before. Now, now Mary, maybe, maybe you have sin in your past marriages, and there is forgiveness for those things. You see, the gospel is good news because it is where we find forgiveness for all manner of our weaknesses, all manner of our failings, all manner of sins, and where God redeems all things. God's intent is we shouldn't separate from our spouse, but... Paul's not naive. He knows that he's writing to a church where some have separated. He says, if you're separated, then, then remain unmarried or, or be reconciled. But don't divorce. But life is complicated. Some people become saved after they are married. Paul knows that. And, and the spouse doesn't believe in Jesus. Yes, so how can a person remain devoted to God in our marriage And if your spouse isn't? Because they probably had that concern. Paul, you just talked about before, and you told us before, that to, to not be unequally yoked or not to be unequally married. In 2 Corinthians, he's going to tell them that as well. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, don't be unequally yoked or married linked to unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? And so they probably were aware of that principle already. They were already aware of where Paul said that, hey, if you're a believer, don't be joined to a prostitute because you're joined to Christ. And they must be thinking, hey, wait a minute, if I'm a believer, how can I be joined to an unbeliever? Does that defile me? Paul says, no, your identity is not found in your marriage partner. Your holiness before God is not found in them. It's found in the fact that God has made you holy. And God sanctifies that relationship. That's what he's saying. God, God sanctifies. It doesn't mean that, that the person, the unbeliever, becomes a Christian necessarily, but they become sanctified or set apart in a unique way, and God says, no, that's not going to defile you. Because if, if that relationship defiled you, then having unbelieving children would defile you. And by the way, most Christians at some point in time, have unbel- if they have children, have unbelieving children at some point. And so what he's saying is that no, otherwise everybody who has children would also be defiled. But no, you are sanctified by God and, and they are also set apart. It doesn't mean they're going to become Christians. It's not a guarantee. But what he says is that you're holy in that relationship because God has made that relationship holy. That's what defines you is your holiness before God is defined by God because of who you are in God. And so he tells us some, some more guidance. If, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, let them go. And, and if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, he says, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now there is a teaching that, that gives guilt to people who have unbelieving spouses that have left. And that is that uh, the, the next 
passage, look in, in verse 16, it says, wife, how do you know whether you save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you save your wife? And so that can be wrongly applied, I believe, to this uh, and, and to the idea of marriage to an unbeliever. And they can say, well, how do you know? How do you know if your wife might, might become a believer? How do you know if your husband might become a believer? So you better stick it out. Even if there's no peace in the relationship and they want to leave, you got to hang on to them, hold them with all your might. Paul is actually reversing that. Look, look in the context here. He says in verse 13, if an, um, an unbeliever, uh, a believer has an unbeliever and consents to live, don't divorce. Verse 14, that's made sanctified. Verse 15, if an unbelieving partner separates, you're not enslaved, God has called you to peace. And then in verse 16, in the context of letting the unbeliever go, he says, because you don't know. Don't, don't try to, to hang on to a relationship with your unbelieving spouse wants to leave you because you don't know that you're going to save them. So he flips that. It's not a means of condemnation, but it actually means of freedom. You don't know that you're going to save your spouse. So don't feel guilt and condemnation. Try to hang on to them in an unbelieving relationship. Like, oh no, I've got to stay married to them or, or else I'm disobeying God. No, he says you're free. You're not bound because you don't know. You don't know if you're going to save them. Then he says in verse 39, a wife's bound to her husband as long as he lives and but if the husband dies, she's free to be married. You're not bound. Our marriage relationships do not define us before the Lord. What defines us is that we remain in Him. What defines us is that we're devoted to Him, that we're called for His purposes, that we've been bought with a price. And in fact, so much that it doesn't define us, he says in verse 40, my judgment is she's happier if she remains single. You can be married, you can be single. You might be happier if you stay that way, by the way. Now, that's not licensed for people to hope their spouse dies, by the way, okay? The third, people are chuckling because every married person has thought, what would that be like? Um, <laughs> it's not good, it's not godly, but it's, it's honest. Here's the great thing, you can remain single, you can remain married, devoted to the Lord, God will enable you no matter what season you're in because that's not your identity. That's not your purpose. That's not your primary calling. The third, third encouragement we see from this passage, really lastly, is that, that we can remain in any condition devoted to the Lord. You can remain in any condition devoted to the Lord. Your relationship status doesn't define you and your social status doesn't define you and your vocation doesn't define you. And that's, that's what he's doing here. Whether they were circumcised or not, and for us, it's a little unrelatable, but how people viewed you and whether you identify with a certain class or group of people or whether you did certain outward things to conform to certain groups, that doesn't define you. What your job is, remain in what, you're called, what your calling was, what your job was when you first became saved, that doesn't define you either. You can remain in that. You don't have to, but remain in that. Don't assume as you're a Christian because you have to change your vocation now. Look in verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now notice that Paul's saying this is my rule. He's giving a command and it's in all the churches. What you do doesn't define you. You're calling by God defines you now. Externals, the state of our body doesn't define us. He says if you're circumcised, Stay that way. Don't try to remove the marks of circumcision. People in that day were actually doing that. We're having surgery to remove the marks of circumcision because they didn't want to be identified with a lowly class. They didn't, they didn't want to be seen as unenlightened people. 
And so maybe they could be more spiritual if they remove those marks so that they're no longer legalists and they're, they're not acting that way. They're not showing that they're part of Jewish people, so they're removing those marks. Or, or other people had pressure to feel conformed, to fit in in a certain way and to do certain things, to, to be accepted by God. And he says, if you're not circumcised, don't get circumcised. Don't think that that's your identity, that's your purpose. Don't think that affects who you are. What you do, your externals, your outward appearances, your body does not define you. Verse 19, he says that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, seeking to obey God from the heart. And isn't that the great commission, right? Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's the heart, living for God. I'm living to be devoted to God in everything. I'm living to keep his commandments in everything that I do. Because why? Because he's bought me with a price. Because he's made me his own. That's my identity. I belong to him. What's my vocation? Oh, I've been called to God. That's my vocation. And whatever I do, it doesn't matter what I do. He's not saying it's unimportant, but what he's saying is that's not primarily. Your job is, is not your primary vocation. Your primary vocation is your calling by God. God's called you by his grace. He's redeemed you irrespective of your relationship status, irrespective of your job, irrespective of whether you're a slave or free. God's calling is what your vocation is. He's called you. He's given you a purpose. When you're a slave, don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, it's going to be better because you're going to be more free to serve him in ways that you're not if you're a slave. But, but being, if, you, if you remain enslaved, something that would be horrific for most of us to think about, you can remain enslaved, he says, and still fulfill your purpose before God. Because it does not affect your purpose. It does not affect your identity. It doesn't affect your calling. So you can remain a slave. Here's, here's the overarching thing. He says, for he was called in the Lord, in verse 22, as a slave, is really free. You're a freedman of the Lord. And, and those who are free are really bond slaves of God. We belong to Jesus in everything. That's who we are. That is our identity. We belong to him. We've been bought by him. In verse 23, you're bought with a price. Then look at verse 24. So what, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Doesn't matter your condition. Doesn't matter your social status. Doesn't matter your vocation. You have an identity and a purpose and a calling that supersede all those things, that are greater than all those things. And, and we live every day in light of the time is growing short. Look in verse 29. He says, I mean this, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. So he gives different scenarios. Let, let those who live as wives as if they had none. He's not saying, hey, if you're married, forget it. Like, act like you don't have a wife. No, he's, what he means is, if you have a wife, live as your primary devotion is to God, not to your wife. Your primary devotion belongs to God, not to a spouse. Your, if, if you don't have a wife, your primary devotion is to God, not your season of life. If you are in a period of mourning, in verse 30, that mourning does not define you. Live as if you are living for that day and you are defined by who God has called you to be, who God has made you to be, and, and your very identity is wrapped up in that, not in the situation you have to mourn about. And then he gives the reverse. If you're rejoicing, don't put your hope in your rejoicing either because that's not your identity, that's not your purpose, that's not your calling. And by the way, so if you're mourning or if you are rejoicing, or if you're able to buy goods, you have lots of material stuff, and you're able to buy lots of material stuff, don't put your hope in those things either, but you're not defined by that. 
You see what Paul's doing here? He's talking about your primary identity, your primary purpose, your, your primary calling. It has nothing to do with what sometimes we rejoice in and we mourn about and what our, our social status is or our ability to buy things. Our future in Christ will overthrow any present mourning or rejoicing and the things of this world are not what we live for. We're in the world, we deal with the world, but we're devoted to the Lord. Certain that our future is not controlled by the things of this world. The present world, all the systems are passing away. The question for us this morning as we, as we close is, are, are you mistaking your marital status as your identity? Are, are you mistaking your social status as your identity? Do you find your worth in either being single or being married? Do you find your worth in your social status? Do you find your worth in whether you're able to buy things or not? Do you find your worth in whether bad things happen to you or good things happen to you? Do you mistake your vocation for your identity? Do you find your sense of worth or identity in what you do or the fact that God has called you? That's your primary calling. He's called you. And you can play that out in whatever you do. Wholeheartedly, ambitiously for him. Because your identity, it's, it's not validated by what you do. It's validated by God, by his calling. Sometimes you can be ambivalent as well. And, and that's when you get your identity wrong. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to work hard for in everything I do because God has called me. And he has a purpose. And he shapes my identity. So I want to live for him. This passage really helps us see that God hasn't called us to either selfish ambition or being ambitionless. He's called us to a faithful ambition through and in all of our marital status, our season of life, what we do, our vocation. He's called us to be devoted to Christ no matter what. There's one primary identity that each and every person here shares, if you're a believer. It's meant to drive and influence and inform everything we do. No matter where you find yourself, what stage, what season of life, what your relationship status is, every Christian has been bought and gifted and called by God to be devoted by him, to him. And that, that is our identity. That's our purpose. That's our calling. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Go ahead and the band come up and we'll, we'll close the song.